This is an ABC podcast. The US President has overseen the signing of historic peace agreements between Israel, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Today the world sees that they're choosing cooperation over conflict. It's a diplomatic triumph for the three countries involved, Israel in particular, but the deals don't include the Palestinian people. The deal signed last month in Washington between Israel and the Arab nations of the UAE and Bahrain brings to fore the number of Arab nations who have normalised diplomatic relations with Israel. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quintus and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. But what does the deal really mean in terms of Middle East politics? And is it likely to lead to ongoing peace in the region? In this program, we try to place the agreement into the broader history of the Middle East. But like all things in the Middle East, it's complicated. By the fact that there's not just one story or one history. From the moment Israel was created in 1948, there have been two very different interpretations of events. British responsibility ended on May 15, 1948, with the departure of the High Commissioner. On the same day, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the independent state of Israel. There was little time for celebration. Within hours, the new state was at war with the four Arab countries surrounding it. For six months, the fighting continued. The Israelis lost the old city of Jerusalem to Jordan, but managed to hold on to most of their territory elsewhere. A truce was signed in February 1949. Although Arab governments refused to recognize the new state, most other countries did. One has to understand that there was no Palestinian issue at all until 1967. Yossi Shane, head of the School of Political Science and International Affairs at Tel Aviv University. When Israel was created in 1948, in what is known as the 1948 War, or for Israelis, the Independence War, the founders of Israel declared independence, and the Arabs, of course, didn't accept that idea that there will be a Jewish state, and the war ensued, seven Arab countries attacked When Israel managed to somehow overcome this war and end up victorious, the state was established. And that was in 1948, as you said. The state was never recognized by its neighbors, and it became part of what we call the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Arab-Israeli conflict is the conflict between Israel and all the Arab countries led by the Arab League, which basically decided to call the Israeli state the Zionist entity, which was defined as an outpost of colonialism in the Middle East. Palestine becomes an armed camp. Haganah troops search for Arabs after capturing the city. During the mopping up operations, Haganah forces seek out every Arab and barricades are set up to screen those who had not already fled the city. Everyone is searched. The creation of the State of Israel resulted in the displacement of over 700,000 Palestinian Arabs, over half the population at the time, who either fled or were expelled. For the Arabs, this was and remains the main impediment to the normalisation of relations with Israel. Khaled El-Gindi is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. After 1948, the most pressing issue was how to deal with this massive refugee crisis that was created when Israel was formed. 
and about two-thirds of Palestinian population was expelled or had to flee the fighting. And it created this massive refugee problem. And most of the animosity toward Israel from the Arab world was in that regard. Why was there so much compassion in the Arab countries to the Palestinian cause? Well, it was several issues. The first was a kind of rejection of Israel's creation and the way Israel was created, which came at the expense of Palestinian society. The destruction of Arab Palestine and in its place came Israel. You know, there was something like 400 villages and towns uh, that were destroyed and depopulated to make room for Israel. So there's the bitterness of that kind of erasing Arab Palestine. There is the status of Jerusalem, which remained unresolved. There is the sense that Israel was an expansionist state, that its borders would continue to grow. And also this sense of anger and bitterness towards Israel for not allowing Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. The Egyptians this morning launched an air and land attack. At dawn, Egyptian armor advanced on the Negev. Our forces are engaging the enemy. During the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel seized the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. The West Bank, including East Jerusalem from Jordan and the Golan Heights from Syria. The Six-Day War was when the Arabs threatened to extinguish the state of Israel and Israel went into what we know as a preemptive strike and hit the Arabs in six days and basically conquered many territories in Egypt, in Syria, from Jordan, from which we have now had the Arab-Palestinian conflict because many of the Palestinians came under Israeli control in the 1967 war in what is known as the West Bank. Prior to that, in 1948, the war with the Arabs also left many Palestinians refugees. But the Palestinian-Israeli issue came to the fore only in 1967, because prior to that, it was perceived as part of an Arab-Israeli conflict. And there was no claims for Palestinian statehood as of yet. Palestinian and Israelis, of course, became the big issue in the Middle East, but many Arab countries continue with their rejection of the existence of the state of Israel. What happens after 1967 or in 1967, whereas the Arab states had been fighting Israel on behalf of the Palestinians before then, in June of 1967, the Arabs are now stakeholders directly in the sense that Israel now occupies not just Palestinian territory in the West Bank and Gaza, but also Egyptian territory in the Sinai Peninsula, Syrian territory in the Golan Heights. And the Arab states have now become direct stakeholders in the conflict with Israel, as opposed to simply fighting on behalf of the Palestinians. Six years later, another war. The Arab nations, led by Egypt and Syria, attacked Israel on the 6th of October 1973. The war resulted in a resounding defeat of the Arab forces. The 1973 war, known as the Yom Kippur War because of the Jewish holiday, the Egyptians and the Syrians attacked Israel in a surprised attack and had great successes in the beginning, but Israelis prevailed and eventually Egypt and Syria were badly defeated. What happened after that, Sadat of Egypt, 
the president, decided that the cycle of war that he thought will bring the downfall of Israel will not work. And he was the first one to think that he can sign a peace deal with Israel and will get back all the Sinai Desert that was occupied in 1967, which he did. That was the Camp David Accords. That was the Egyptian-Israeli Accord. Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat signed it. Egypt seizes on that moment a few years later in 1973 in which the Egyptians and the Syrians launched a surprise attack on Israel in an effort to not necessarily recapture the territories that they lost, but to demonstrate to Israel that it was not invincible and to sort of force it to the negotiating table. And from that point onward, you saw a very pragmatic Egyptian leadership pursuing its own interests, trying to regain Egyptian territory. And that led to the the Camp David process and eventually an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty in which Israel ended up returning the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt under the rubric of the land for peace formula that became the basis for Arab-Israeli negotiations after 1967. And what did Israel and Egypt each gain from this peace deal? Certainly there were gains for Israel, mostly in a strategic sense, in that Egypt being the largest Arab state and the largest armed force in the Arab world, taking Egypt out of the military equation was obviously a huge benefit to the Israelis. So there was a strategic interest in kind of neutralizing that major front. And that basically put an end to the region-wide Arab-Israeli military scenario. But we'd continue to see border skirmishes and fighting, but it was no longer a multi-front kind of situation. So that was clearly in Israel's advantage. For Egypt, obviously regaining all of the territory that it lost in 1967 was a major development for them but also realigning itself with the West and with the United States opened up new strategic possibilities. They were no longer part of the Soviet bloc. So it cemented Egypt as a key Western player in the region, as an ally of the United States. And that opened up important economic opportunities for tourism, for trade, not having to devote all those resources to its military So there were some very important economic and political benefits. But the peace deal was rejected by all other Arab states. Omar Rahman is a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute Doha Center. Well, certainly after 1979, when Egypt signed the peace agreement with Israel, it was extremely controversial. They were thrown out of the Arab League, and Egypt was the most powerful and most influential state in the Middle East. But they were blacklisted and suspended from the Arab League, and the Arab League was based in Cairo. So you can imagine the dramatic effect to that. But Anwar Sadat eventually was assassinated because of this peace deal, because the radicals in the Arab world did not like it. At that time when he signed, in fact, Very shortly after, radical Islam started to prevail in the Arab world after the rise of the mullahs in Iran and the rise of Khomeini in Iran. This was in 79. So the Arab-Israeli conflict, which was built on the question of pan-Arabism, on the question of modernity, was now built on the question of enmity based on religion. And so Israelis and Arabs were now in a different conflict, but Egypt and Israel 
kept the peace deal that was struck in 1978 and in 1981, in fact, was formalized completely when Israel returning all the land. Other Arab states were reluctant to come to the fore because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the time intensified. This is Rear Vision, I'm Annabel Quince, and we're tracing the story of how and why the Arab states began to normalise political relations with Israel. It wasn't until the 1990s and the Oslo Accord, which saw an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians, that other Arab nations began to openly negotiate with Israel. Then yet again, we had another conflict in the region, which had nothing to do with Israel, was the conflict when Iraq conquered Kuwait in 1990, August 1990. And the American intervened, and after they defeated Saddam Hussein at that war, there was the Madrid conference where people said, okay, now it's time to put an end to conflict in the Middle East. In Washington, a handshake between Yasser Arafat and Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin has sealed a new era of Middle East politics. The two sides signed their peace agreement at the White House, formally recognizing each other and establishing principles for interim self-government on the Gaza. The Palestinians and Israelis indeed came to sign a deal in 1993 known as the Oslo Accord. And as a result of that, Jordan, which was the first holder of the West Bank, agreed to sign with Israel as well. So now Israel had peace with Egypt and Jordan, and the Palestinians and Israelis signed the Oslo Accord I think what's been more influential for the Arab states today has been the Oslo Accords with the Palestinians. Because once the Palestinian issue was to an extent out of the way, although the Oslo Accords never resolved the Palestinian issue, even after 27 years ongoing, it kind of gave a license to the Arab states or some Arab states to open lines of communication with the Israelis and establish relations that were back-channel relations under the table. And that's what the Gulf states that have recently established formal relations with Israel did. So in the 90s, Qatar, for example, started relations, I think, in 1996 with Israel, unofficial, under-the-table relations, but they opened those channels because the Palestinians themselves were in negotiations with the Israelis. And the Jordanians obviously had signed a peace agreement in 1994. So I think that's been the real influential part of it. But as we know, the Oslo Accord did not resolve the Palestinian issue. But yet again, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict intensified because there were like lots of disagreements as to what the Oslo Accord means. Arafat wanted more. The Israelis didn't agree what Arafat wanted. The terrorism never stopped. Arafat, in fact, said that we will use terrorism as a means until we get what we want. So the conflict continued. The Oslo process was supposed to produce a Palestinian state by 1999. It was a five-year interim period that was set to expire by 1999. It didn't lead to a final stat, a resolution of the issue. Negotiations dragged on, and then in 2000, in July of 2000, President Clinton called this last-ditch effort at Camp David to try and reach a breakthrough. At that point, most Arab states were not yet inclined to want to normalize with Israel because there was a threat from Iran, but there were other threats. It was still seen as more important to maintain a united Arab front. Then the world was turned upside down by the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Make no mistake, the United States will hunt down and punish those responsible 
U.S. President George W. Bush speaking after a wave of attacks struck at the heart of America's military, economic and political establishment. After September 11, the equation changed yet again, and after what is known as the Second Intifada of the suicide bombings in Israel. The Israelis and the Palestinians now, the whole deal of the Oslo crushed, and the idea of the struggle in the Middle East and the Islamicism came to the fore. And from 2001, September 11, 2001, and all the way to today, what you see is the Middle East gradually was unraveling. And why it was unraveling? For a variety of reasons, but this, the top reason was that Arab regimes were crumbling, issues of democracy and Islamic radicalism and terrorism in the world, including Al-Qaeda, including eventually the Islamic State, including the mayhem in Syria, including Shiite and Sunni wars that started to engulf the whole Middle East. And of course, Iran as architect of part of this mayhem with its own theology about converting the Middle East. Ten years later, a wave of anti-government protests and uprisings swept across the Arab world and became known as the Arab Spring. After 30 years of oppression, elation, this was the peaceful protest that brought down the dictator, Hosni Mubarak. The overthrow of longtime Tunisian leader Zine El Abedin Ben Ali has stunned the region and worried neighbouring leaders. Especially after 2011 and the Arab Spring, there's a convergence of interests around Iran. And there's also a convergence of interests in terms of apprehension and contempt for calls for democracy and accountability and popular government. All of these things, you know, what we used to call the Arab Spring after the Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings produced unstable, imperfect democratic experiments. For a while, there was a real threat that democracy could take hold in Egypt. And this was a real threat to Israel, was a threat to the Arab monarchies that are fundamentally anti-democratic and who saw any kind of popular empowerment, democratic transition as an existential threat to those regimes, in part because they would lead to the empowerment of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, who in most of these countries in the region, the Muslim Brotherhood has been the most organized opposition force. And so it wasn't a surprise to see the Islamist movements in Tunisia and Egypt and elsewhere kind of take the lead and benefit from free elections the most. The threat of political Islam, the threat of democratic change, the growing influence of Iran, all of these things, both the Israelis and the Gulf states kind of converged around. Many Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, the Bahrainis, the UAE, Oman, many others were part of the Sunni alliance who saw that now the biggest threat is not Israel, but of course the Iranians. People in the Arab world realizing that Arab radicalism, Islamism, terrorism didn't give them anything. And in fact, relation with Israel gave them a lot. When during the Obama administration, the Obama administration thought it will create a different Middle East and maybe will create a democratic Middle East. So therefore, they supported the Arab Spring. But the Arab Spring became sour and became, rather than the Arab Spring, it became Arab radicalism with Islam coming even stronger. 
So that also led to change of regimes in Egypt. First came the Islamic Brotherhood, and then again the army took power. So lots of things relate to the Arab world. And then the Arab realized it's not about the Israeli-Palestinians, it's about us, how we are in the midst of huge enmity. And we and Muslim countries and Arab countries are fighting each other. And in Syria, a million people are killed, Syrians killing Syrians. And in Lebanon, Hezbollah is destroying Lebanon. And other countries, you know, like we are threatened by Shiites and Sunni rivalries. Suddenly the realization was sinking that it's not about the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's about our conflict. And in fact, Israel can be a stabilizing force. I think the principal motivation of the Gulf states like the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia is ultimately political survival. And when they look out into the wider region, they see an antagonistic Iran, an antagonistic Turkey with growing regional ambitions of their own. They see the ashes of revolutions that brought down regimes all over the region, including former allies of theirs. They see the power and influence of opposition groups, including Islamists like the Muslim Brotherhood, who were able to take advantage of the democratic openings that happened after the revolutions and who are also present and operative in their own countries. And they see the United States that has been instrumental in maintaining their security for decades now wanting to pull back from the region. So they're doing all they can to counter these trends and build new strategic alliances, I think, with the goal of surviving politically intact at the end of this thing. Whether they view Israel as a stabilizing force, maybe. I think more view it as a strong regional actor who is also opposed to Iranian influence in the region. And so they might see a possible regional alliance they can build there. But I think most importantly, when they look towards Israel, they view American foreign policy in the Middle East, right or wrongly, as being guided to some extent by Israel's security and interests in addition to its own. And so they want to market themselves in Washington as as an ally of Israel. And also they fear that the U.S. becoming disengaged from their own security is a big threat to them. So I think they want to keep the United States intimately engaged in their security, and they see themselves by linking their security to Israel's security as keeping the U.S. engaged. And I think that is the priority for these states. U.S. President Donald Trump has predicted a new dawn for the Middle East with the signing of agreements normalizing relations between Israel, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. They are choosing a future in which Arabs and Israelis, Muslims, Jews and Christians can live together, pray together. The Trump administration changed the mindset and said, no, Iran is the biggest problem. Radicals, we were not going to talk to you. Palestinians, if you don't come to the table, we don't give you money. Because everybody was donating money to the Palestinians for generations. We have generations of generations of what Palestinians called refugees. They never solved the issue of refugees. If you look at the Palestinian leadership, which is quite interesting, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, it's the same leadership of the old ideology. But this leadership became completely irrelevant and was split among the self, as I said, with the Islamic jihadists and with Hamas and so on. So the Trump administration indeed changed the equation and said, we are on the side of Israel. We are on the side of modernity, on the side of modern states. We're not going to ask, as Obama said, democratic states because this doesn't work. We are realpolitik. Anyone who comes and have business doing, we're with them. And we're going to exert tremendous pressure on Iran and the United States basically saying we're going to fight Iran. And it weakened Iran. It weakened the radicals. And the moderate states understood that, in fact, they're being defended 
by America and Israel vis-a-vis Iran because Iran is threatening their stability. So no one anymore is talking about democracy. They're talking about autocrats who are capable of keeping stability. In Egypt, in Jordan, in the UAE, in Bahrain, no one is talking the language of the democratization that was in the region. They see what brought kind of like under the banner of democratization, radicals came into the fore and stuck anarchy or Islamic-style democracy that beheaded people or raped women under Baghdadi. The Trump administration has not made even the pretense of democracy. Trump has demonstrated pretty clearly that he's quite comfortable with autocrats, whether in Russia or in the Middle East. He's actually much more comfortable with illiberalism and with autocratic regimes for a host of reasons. Given the nature of his political base, which includes evangelicals, they're seen as as central to his electoral success, both in 2016 and his hopes for re-election in just a couple weeks. And so Trump's hostility toward the Palestinians, his embrace of regional autocrats, has made him the go-to guy for the Arab Gulf states and for the Israelis. There is a political and ideological alignment and convergence there that we didn't see under the Obama administration and that we're not likely to see in a possible Biden administration. And so there is a sense that if there is going to be a greater Israel, if there is, we're going to put an end to this idea of a Palestinian state, now is the time to do it when the regional stars are aligning. Now, when it comes to the how instrumental the Trump administration has been in these accords or in bringing these sides together, I think it's been very instrumental. Obviously, U.S. administrations stretching back decades have pushed for greater acceptance of Israel within the Arab world, within the region. But how hard they pushed, I'm not quite sure, and how willing they were to use American power and influence and leverage over the relationships with these countries, I don't think it's been to the extent that the Trump administration has, which has really been willing to throw its weight around and pushing these sides together because it views these bilateral relationships as much more transactional than any other government in U.S. history. And so you have people within the administration that were very interested in taking this route, primarily Jared Kushner, in bringing these different sides together. So he built relationships in the Gulf, especially with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and, and with the crown prince of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed, and pushed for these states to cross the threshold and make their unofficial relations with Israel, which had been warming for years and had become quite strong, to make them official and to make them more visible and open. And so they've gone ahead and done it. So I think the Trump administration has been successful in that regard. The UAE and Bahrain gain an large alliance which will support them against Iranian intervention. Iranians are threatening them. Now there is a very interesting alliance emerging of the Sunni state, even though Bahrain has a majority of Shiite, but their regime is Sunni. So they have Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the UAE, all of which are countries that can do well economically. Israel is a powerhouse in terms of technology. It's a big market and so on. So they understand that they can really have good relations. Secondly, the UAE is going to get F-35 from the Americans by enlarging its alliance, the, the military alliance. So you create kind of a, a new balance of power in the Middle East 
which is an anti-Iran balance of power, and it's also a potential for tremendous growth economically of these countries, of traveling, of people coming. It changes the entire aroma of the place. These states are not establishing these relations to create peace. They're establishing these relations to form an alliance in the region to better address the shifting geopolitics of the region. And that imbues conflict with Iran. So conflict rather than peace. And so this is a normalization of relations and the forming of alliance rather than a peace treaty. Omar Rachman, visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute Doha Centre. My other guests, Khaled Elgindi, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and Yossi Shane, head of the School of Political Science and International Affairs at Tel Aviv University. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.